Amen. Good morning. Hey, that was pretty good. Good morning. Hey, that was a lot better, though. All right. So we talked about missions earlier, and I would be remiss if I did not say a little blurb about another way that you support missions here in Houston. The IMB does great work all over the world. I, I count Paul Chitwood as a friend. I'm sure he would say the same thing if he were here. Uh, but here in Houston, your church is a part of a network of more than 400 churches around the city, and together we work to engage more than 350 different ethno-linguistic people groups that are here because more than 220 languages are spoken across the city of Houston. Your church works with more than 400 churches here in Houston to do church planting, to do replanting, which is helping churches that are near closing to come back and and provide uh, the flame of the gospel where that flame is in danger of going out. Your church is part of assessing church planters to go into parts of the city that haven't seen church planting in years and years and plant churches where those churches are needed. Your church is part of partnering with churches to bring pastors into fellowship groups because I don't know if you know this, but pastoring can be an incredibly lonely thing to do. And your church is part of that fellowship. Your church is part of acting like the body of Christ. And we do that through the Union Baptist Association. I, I have the privilege of being the executive director of that organization for the last four years. I've worked for UBA uh, for 17 and a half years. And I've worked with churches for over 20. And I can tell you that missions is done all over the world, all over the nation, and throughout the city. And cooperative program giving goes to support what is done throughout the nation and throughout the world. But UBA is not funded through the cooperative program. UBA is funded directly from churches like yours. And so on behalf of UBA, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a part of that work. You are not just a part of that work through uh, the checks that you send, though we are thankful for that because we have bills to pay just like everybody else. But you are a part of that by your participation in that. And so you have staff and residents that are a part of the activity of that. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And thank you for allowing me the privilege of being here this morning. A lot of you don't know me. A lot of you don't know UBA. And maybe by the end of today, uh, you will have a glimpse of the activity that you're a part of. But before we get to that, I just want to ask a question. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? Are you brave enough to raise your hand? How many of you have already broken your New Year's resolutions? Oh, okay. So we do have some brave people. And a lot of you do not make New Year's resolutions. I have a New Year's resolution to not go over the time clock that is staring me right in the face here. Because I don't want to be late to supper. I don't want to be late to the Lord's Supper here. But a lot of people make New Year's resolutions, right? And we, we have this expectation of change right at the beginning of the new year, right? We, we expect change. We we have this attitude right at the beginning of the year that we, we want things to be different, right? We have this understanding that either we could do better or, you know, we, we need to change something. Maybe it's need to, to get the weight down or the blood pressure down or the steps up or the miles run up. I, I don't run for fun. I've just never had anybody chase me that long. Uh, I, I just don't, I can't really focus that long. It's, it's just boring to me. Now, if there's a scoreboard involved, I'm all over that. Uh, but, but we have this expectation of change. Now, a lot of people don't like change, right? And they, I, I hear this all the time. Now, I am a fairly change-happy person. 
my wife does not like to leave me alone in the house for long periods of time because I'll move the furniture. I'll just change stuff. Uh, in fact, she, now this was a happy change, but she took my oldest son to Washington, D.C. this summer. She came back and I had painted her office. Um, I just like doing stuff like that. Now, uh, she is not a very change-happy person, but everybody likes change when it's their idea. Right? Now, just think about that for just a second. Everybody likes change when it's their idea. It's when change is imposed on us that we're not that crazy about it. Now, here's my theory about change. When we want to build new routines, we want to make New Year's resolutions, we do that to make a change to get us to a point where we don't have to make change anymore. Right? We, we want to get our weight down to a certain pound that we don't have to make changes anymore, right? Or we want to get to a certain level. We want to do push-ups, and then we want to make it so that it's easy to do that number of push-ups so that we don't have to do any more push-ups after that, right? We want to maintain, and we'll do enough change to where we can maintain that level of change and never do anything else after that. That's my theory of change, and my theory of that change applies to churches as well. Churches live for the status quo, right? The, the moment of peace, the, the, that moment in our time where everything is great, right? The good old days. Whenever the good old days were, and whenever they were really good, regardless of how really good they were right? We, we live for that. We, and, and we always want to get back to that. And so whenever a pastor stands up on stage and says, okay, we have this campaign coming, we have to build something, or we have to change something in the auditorium, or we have to, to institute a new program, or we're going to change the schedule of something, we're always evaluating it compared to that period of time or that date or the, the thing that we really like and saying, is it going to get us back to that moment that we really liked, right? And then, okay, we'll go through that program change, that shift or that money, we'll build the thing and we'll get to a point that then we'll be done and we won't have to do any more change after that. That's my theory of change and that's my theory of churches engaging change. So which brings us to what do churches really do? What are churches about? Why are you here? And you're thinking to yourself, well, it's January 8th. I'm here because this is my New Year's resolution. I wasn't going to raise my hand earlier, but since you asked, I'm here because I want to be in church more often. Uh, you know, Pastor Avery said I should be here more often. Pastor Jarrett said I should be here more often. And this, I am one for one. Okay, this is the first week after New Year's, and I have checked the box done. I will probably be here next week also, especially now that you're guilting me into it. Okay. Which, okay. That's okay. I'm, I, you know, guilt can work for positive reasons. But why are you here at a deep fundamental level? Why do churches exist? Churches exist because they are the vehicle to make disciples. And let's be careful that we understand what disciples really are. Disciples are learners. Disciples are students. Disciples are unfinished products. Disciples are not graduates. Disciples are not people who have it all figured out. Disciples are not finished products. 
So if disciples are learners and churches exist to produce disciples, churches by nature exist to produce unfinished products, disciples of Jesus, learners of Jesus. Churches exist to produce disciples that make more disciples. Churches are supposed to be disciple-making factories. And if we are all supposed to be learners of Jesus, the only way to do that is to follow what he says. Not the least of which was love him, love God, love others, and make more disciples. And so presumably, now I'm, I'm reaching, I'm making an assumption here, which is, you know, one of the cardinal things not to do. Presumably, most of you have bought into that. Now, some of you are living through other people's New Year's resolutions, and so you agreed to be here this morning, and you haven't bought into that at all, and that's okay. But I would be willing to bet that at a gut level, most of us here think that something fundamentally is wrong with the world. Now, you may even not ascribe to that at your level, just saying the outside world, the other parts of the world, something is wrong. The world is just a little off, right? If you, <laughs> and I got an amen from that. The world is just a little off. That's why if you, if you can still find a bookstore, you go into the bookstore, the self-help section is the largest section there. That's why every commercial is trying to sell you something to make the world a little better. Maybe it's something in you that needs to be better. Maybe it's a product that needs to make some part of the world better. But the world is just a little off. The world needs help. And what is your role in making the world a little bit better? Maybe it's that you need to vote a different way. Maybe it's you need to keep voting a certain way to keep making changes so that the world will be better. I don't know. Maybe it's that you need to change your career. You need to career your way to peace and joy. Maybe you need to date your way to peace and joy. And we've all seen the dating commercials and the dating apps and everything else. Maybe you need to love your way to peace and joy. Maybe you need to march your way to peace and joy. Maybe you need to parent your way to peace and joy. There's more than a few parenting books out there. I have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. Trust me, there's a lot of parenting advice out there. If, if you do all those things to find your own peace and joy in a deep, satisfying way, we will always fail. And I only know that because every person that has come before me has tried those things and failed. To find ultimate peace, joy, and satisfaction, to do all of those things aside from God, we failed. And the reason is very simple. Because all of those things are parts of creation. They are not the creator. It would be like falling in love with a piece of music instead of the composer. It would be like falling in love with an Italian dish instead of the cook who makes the dish and saying, okay, I, I have found my peace, joy, and satisfaction in this thing instead of the person who makes the thing. And so what is the ultimate problem with the world? Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. 
Now, I don't want to be a, <clears throat> a downer here at the new year, but sin has wrecked the world that God created. And we know that going all the way back to the Genesis narrative, we know that as soon as Adam and Eve, and it was a team effort here, as soon as Adam and Eve chose to take a bite of the whatever it was, apple, peach, it's always a peach if you're in Georgia. If you ever talk to somebody in Georgia, they're like, it wasn't an apple, it was a peach. So substitute your favorite fruit. My kids love to debate what this was, okay? But whatever the fruit was, as soon as they chose their own agenda, as soon as they chose their own plan and said, we know better than God, that choice, that idolatry, that treasonous act, that one act of sin broke the creative design that God had put in motion to provide for us the peace, joy, and satisfaction that only He can provide. And why was it idolatry? Because they put their own plan in place of God's plan. That is simply idolatry. Anytime you put anything where God should be, that's idolatry. Why was it treason? Because they were putting themselves above God. They were overthrowing the hierarchy that God had put in place. And so this treasonous, idolatrous act, this sin at its very basic essence, is what wrecked the world and has been wrecking the world ever since. And so we have to deal with this sin problem. Now, here comes the expectation of change. And here's where we have to rely on God to fix this sin problem that we created. Because God looks at this and he sees creation for what it is. He sees us for what we are and says, you cannot possibly fix this mess. Because every time you try, every good idea that you come up with is good, but not great. It's okay, but it's not the best. Because sin is always going to be lurking there in your imperfect nature. I had a perfect plan. We need to redeem and recreate this perfect creation that I had in place. And so this is what I'm going to do. And this is where we get to John 3.16. This is where we get to one of the most basic Bible verses in all of Scripture. And I, I don't even want it on the screen. I didn't tell the guys that I was going to use this verse. I just want you to hear it in the context of the biblical narrative. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now listen to the next couple of verses because these are important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Here's what God is saying. You can continue in sin and trying to find your own peace, joy, and satisfaction, but you will not find it. You can continue to try and, and conjure up your own solutions if you want to, but they will continue to be a dead end. And if you want out of that dead end, this is why I sent my son, 
Jesus into the world. That is the context of John 3.16. That is the solution. And all you need to do to get out of that is to believe. And it is a free gift to you. That is the grace of that free gift. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. You didn't do anything for it. You didn't work your way toward that. In fact, it says, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. All right, so now we're in this, we have the problem of sin, and Jesus is the answer. He is the solution. He is the fix to the sin problem. But sin is still going to be present with us. So how do we deal with this? Now we have to expect some change. Because by sacrificing his life on the cross, you know, Jesus comes, he lives his perfect life, he dies a sinner's death on the cross, the the one that we deserved, takes away the guilt of the sin, and now we stand before Jesus, or stand before God as a redeemed creation. Not the sinners we once were, just consuming creation. But several things change in a permanent, eternal way in God's eyes once we accept that free grace. Now, I'm going to use some fancy words here, and these all deserve a hundred sermons on their own, so I'm not going to get into it, but here are a couple of fancy seminary words for you, and Pastor Avery can deal with these long after I'm gone. This is the beauty of being a guest speaker. Regeneration starts the moment that you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. The moment that you ask forgiveness for your sins and He comes into your life, regeneration happens, which means God gives you new life. Justification happens, which means where you were guilty for your sins, in a legal sense, God says, even though you are guilty, I am declaring you innocent in my eyes. And then adoption happens when God says, you are part of my family. I am adopting you in. I am bringing you in to my family. And all three of those last throughout the rest of your life until eternity happens. And I heard a beautiful um, sentence one time. Another pastor said, sinner is no longer your identity, but now your occasional behavior. Sinner is no longer your identity, but now your occasional behavior. God doesn't see any more treasonous idolaters. He sees children in his family. He doesn't see our best efforts as sad as they are. He sees kids that need help. He doesn't see our mistakes. He sees people who only know good, not what's best. And the start of that relationship also begins a process called sanctification. And sanctification means this. It is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Let me give you that definition one more time. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man or woman that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. 
So in addition to regeneration and justification and adoption, we get to be sanctified. We get to start this relationship where God says, okay, expect change in your life. There's a great cliche out there that says, come as you are. Come to Jesus however you are. You don't need to clean up your life before you come to church, and I wholeheartedly agree with that, but expect change because when you come to Jesus, Jesus, there is no verse in the Bible where Jesus says you're going to stay as you come. Expect change. So come to Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, now we are going on a journey. We're going on a walk. And it's going to be a relationship where you take a step, and then Jesus says, now take a step in that direction. And you work with Jesus as it begins a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. You become friends with this God who just saved you from your own sins, which is amazing. And if you think about your best friend in your life, how did that happen? How did you become best friends with that person? I spent yesterday afternoon playing volleyball um, with, with five other guys. One of them was celebrating their 40th birthday. He turns 40 tomorrow. So he's a pup, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm six years older than this person. So we're all out there um, playing sand volleyball and acting like goofballs. And then we went out to dinner last night. and It was a great time. And, and it occurred to me, I've been friends with this guy for five or six years now. Our kids play on the same soccer team. He's one of my best friends in the world. And I have no idea how that really happened. I mean, we spent time together, sure. Our, our kids know each other and our kids consider themselves best friends. We, we spent time, we've, we've talked, we've traveled. But if I had to really dissect how that relationship got the designator best friends, I have no idea how that happened. It just happens over time. It happens because I got to know him. It happens because I have increased level of trust with him. But if I hadn't spent the time, if I hadn't talked with him, if I hadn't shared things with him, if he hadn't shared things with me, I guarantee I would not designate him one of my best friends. And getting to know Jesus Christ and following him and becoming one of his disciples, learning about him, cannot happen independent of any of those same things, just like you became best friends with your best friend. So now, and you thought I was never going to open the Bible. I know you did. <laughs> now we go to our passage today. It comes from 1 John chapter 1. The first few verses are for context. But this is going to show you how sanctification works. Starting in verse 5. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to give you the first six verses of chapter 2. So 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So for context here, this is the process that we go through to say, okay, we need to walk in the light. We need to do what Jesus asks us to do in order to live the kind of life that he asks us to live. So First of all, God is light. We have fellowship with him if we stay in the light. And then it says, you will mess that up. But that's what 1 John 1, 9 is for. If we confess our sins. Now, this is not whether or not you are a sinner in the eternal sense. This is what to do when you have sin in your life. When you mess up, and you will mess up. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is all context for chapter 2. And John writes to his, his people there. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So the expectation of change there is so that as you become more and more of a disciple of Christ, you will sin less. There will be mess-ups, yes. There will be screw-ups, yes. But we should expect to sin less. But notice, he says there in verse 1, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation propitiation of our sins, which means he is the offering that turns away God's wrath, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So there's the litmus test. You cannot just say that you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you do what he says. If you love Jesus, you do what he says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Catch this. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If sanctification is a constant act through our life, we should live with the expectation of change. We should live with the expectation that God is going to say, okay, yesterday was one thing, tomorrow is going to be something else. Now, I know that that can be scary, but look, this is lived out in the life of Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Now, I love to make fun of Peter. Because Peter brings it on himself, right? Peter was always the first one to blurt out something stupid. But Peter was also the first one to jump out of the boat when Jesus said, I'm walking on water and you can too. And the rest of the disciples are like, nah, and Peter's like, okay, I'll do it. And he jumps out of the boat. And he makes it halfway to Jesus. Now, we love to make fun of Peter, but he's the only one that got out of the boat, Right? Now, he's also the only one that had the gumption when Jesus said, the Son of Man is about to be crucified, turned over, and he has to die for the sins of the world. Peter, the scripture says in Matthew, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. What? 
Who's rebuking Jesus Christ? Peter is. Okay, so there's plenty to make fun of of Peter. But Peter is constantly developing. He's constantly changing. And even after Jesus dies, raises from the grave, ascends into heaven, Pentecost has already happened, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is still changing. Now, Peter, this is a long story. It's a whole chapter of Scripture, and, and I'm not going to get there. If I, if I get there, we won't have Lord's Supper, and Avery will never invite me back. But this is what happens. So Peter is praying on a rooftop, and while he's, while he's praying, a man named Cornelius, is, he's, he's a, a member of the Italian cohort. So this is a Gentile's Gentile. Okay, but he's a God-fearing Gentile. He prays. He's known among the Jews to be an upright person. And while he's praying, an angel says, send for Peter. And he says, okay, I'll send for Peter. And while Peter is in Joppa a couple of days away, Peter has this vision because Peter's hungry. He's got the munchies. And while they're preparing breakfast for him, a vision of food comes down, all these different animals. And the Lord says, kill and eat. And Peter, being Peter, who has no problem arguing with God, says, some of these animals are unclean, and I've never eaten anything unclean. I am a Jew's Jew. I'm not going to do that. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made. And that vision happens three times on that rooftop. So Peter's going round and round with God on this. And then the Holy Spirit says, hey, some guys are here from uh, from Cornelius, go with them, I sent them, do it without hesitation, it's going to be fine. And so Peter is wrestling with, why would I have this vision of all these animals I can't eat? And God says, okay, they're clean, and uh, this is messing with all my Jewish foundations. Remember, the, the New Testament church is only a couple years old at this point. So mostly the New Testament church is a bunch of Jews trying to live a good Jewish life, even though the, the covenant has been fulfilled, and now they're trying to figure out how all this works. And so, they, so the men show up. They said, hey, Cornelius would like to see you. Would you come with us? And Peter says, yes, I would. And then he grabs a few of his friends from Joppa, and they all go down to this Gentile's house. And while he was there, he says to them, you know it's unlawful for me to even go to a Gentile's house. You know, it, and it was. For a Jew, Gentiles are unclean. Everything about a, a non-Jew, a Gentile, everything about that is unclean. He can't stay in their house. He can't eat their food. He can't do any of those things. And so he says to them, um, but I, I came, I, I'm here. Why, what, what do you want? And they say, and, and Cornelius says, I, I want to know what God has commanded you. And so Peter starts to preach because what else is he supposed to do? And while Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit, and this is from Acts 10, 44, it says, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that means the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed. Other versions of the Bible said they were astounded, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing and speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter, who walked and talked with Jesus, even he had to expect change. Even he had to expect change. And so 
what does this mean for us? What is this this process of sanctification, this expectation of change, what, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you when I say the Christian life is built around constant change? I read a number on the internet, so you know it has to be true, <laughs> that 62% of people are naturally change resistant. I read another quip somewhere that said the only people who like change are wet babies. So what if I'm, what I'm proposing is true and that it should be a normal practice for us to expect change? Here's, here's what I'm going to suggest to us this morning. And maybe these are New Year's resolutions for you. First, I would say embrace what it means to abide and walk like Jesus. You know, the... I know your church is starting for women a, a 21 days of prayer and fasting. Embrace it. I know that midweek is happening throughout all of your campuses and that there are groups because we were designed to live in community with one another. When was the last time you considered living out your walk with Jesus in community with others? When was the last time that you asked yourself every day, what needs to change in me to be more like Jesus? So embrace what it means to abide in him and walk like Jesus. The second thing is this, don't make excuses for your shortcomings or the sin in your life. I know a pastor's wife who was infamous for saying, God didn't give me the spiritual gift of mercy. Well, in Texas, we would say, bless your heart. <laughs> I'm not from Colorado, but I have really clung to that statement. Or I'm from Colorado. I'm not from Texas. I love the bless your heart <laughs> statement. That's not a spiritual gift, okay? Everybody should be merciful. So let's not make excuses for our shortcomings. Let's work on those. Let's expect change in our life. Let's pray, God, change me to be more like you. Let's not create excuses. And let's tell better stories of our faith. The world that watches us, and they do, the world watches the church, the world watches Christians, maybe more today than they ever have before. They should know that disciple means learner. They should know that disciple means unfinished product. They should know that we are all still trying to figure it out. And so nobody should be confused when I mess up. I, I don't claim to be a master Jesus follower. And I wrote my dissertation on narcissism. So if anybody ever gets that confused, I should really be slapped around. Communicate that you are expecting change in your life. Communicate with others that you're expecting change. And challenge yourself to tell your story. We've got to tell others the simple truth that we are learning to walk and abide just like Jesus. And that we're still learning how. But every day we're expecting change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, you first loved us. 
And that is an amazing truth. Lord, you are gracious. You are great. And Lord, I'm so thankful that in your patience and your endurance that you do guide us every day in a sanctifying process that we can be more like you. Lord, there are those within the sound of my voice that don't know the saving grace that you have provided through your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would understand what it's like to feel the freedom to not have to work for their own peace and joy and satisfaction, to understand that that is a gift from you. And so, Lord, may they seek you because your word says when we seek, we will find you. Lord, lead us to expect change. Lead us to seek you out. And Lord, be honored and glorified in that process of change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus in person on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.